Europe Out Loud, a podcast about Europe's history, culture and civilization. Brought to you by the Martins Centre with Frederico Reo. Hello everyone, welcome to a new episode of Europe Out Loud, our podcast series. As always, we have chosen a topic which I believe is controversial in contemporary political debates, but we will try to approach it in a historically and culturally grounded way, at least as much as we can. I am very pleased that I'm not alone on this podcast. I would like to welcome actually Dr. Marco Duranti from the University of Sydney. Welcome, Marco. It's a great pleasure to be here. Thank you. Because the, the main topic of our chat is actually based on Marco's uh, recently published uh, book last year, actually, 2017, by Oxford University Press, The Conservative Human Rights Revolution. So first of all, congratulations on an excellent book. It's a big tome, but very uh, thought-provoking. <laughs> Thank you very much. First of all, maybe a little bit of background about Marco. Marco was educated in the United States at Harvard and Yale for his PhD. He has had several appointments throughout the world, including in Europe at Cambridge and I believe at the uh, European University Institute in Florence and other places, but I'm not going to list all of them. He is beautifully contrarian, as I could see during our lunch conversation, so I think he's going to give us food for thought on a, on a very central and important issue. I have to say, Marco, uh, I was struck when I came across your book for two reasons. I mentioned them briefly to you before we started recording. First of all, we have long been thinking here at the Martin Center about the possibility of what we called uh, somewhat tentatively a center-right or conservative Europeanism. And in your book, I have found, in fact, what I believed for a long time was the case that there is in the history of European integration actually such a movement. And then at the point, it was lost. And we are try now trying to rediscover it. And I would like us to, to talk a bit about the contours of this um, this ideological stance. The second point is even more burning in terms of political relevance uh, because the, the main argument you make is that conservatives actually were important, the, the most important perhaps, the driving force behind uh, the European Convention of Human Rights and therefore the birth of the European human rights uh, system. And this is a very novel, I would say, idea, and we'll have the occasion to look into that more deeply. But let me start with a very general question. Can you perhaps summarize for us the main arguments of the book? What are your main claims? Sure. Well, I'll try to be as controversial and as historically grounded as possible. Yeah, so the argument of the book is that the European human rights system, above all, the European Convention on Human Rights, adopted in 1950, reflected both conservative values and conservative interests. So it's a book about the role of particular individual conservatives, among them Winston Churchill and a number of Tories uh, and also a number of continental Catholics. But it's also a book about a different vision of the European project, uh, not just a kind of technocratic vision that we often associate with figures like Jean Monnet, but a vision of European integration in which the economic dimension is linked very closely with a cultural and ethical dimension. In fact, it's a, it's a European project born after the Second World War, a moment in which Europe is in, not just in a deep economic crisis, but in a deep spiritual crisis, one that is about 
creating an understanding of what it means to be European and what are the values that are going to unite Europeans. And ultimately, the answer to this question is human rights. Thanks. And there are already several things I'd like to cut in what you said. The first is this uh, connection, if you want, between ethics and interest between the material basis of European integration and the ethical basis of European integration in the minds of these conservatives. Could you elaborate a little bit on that? How would the two of them look like? Sure. So I think what we see in 1945 is a continent that has just experienced the death of 38 million or more Europeans, economic devastation, but also a real existential challenge to the very idea of European civilization. In fact, those words European civilization are something of a joke in 1945, a contradiction mm. uh, for many people. We have to remember Europe had once thought of itself as at the apex of the civilized world, right? European culture and philosophy and ethics and technological progress. And so in this moment in 1945, at this moment where you have on the one hand, these uh, national reconstruction efforts, uh, and at the other hand, the establishment of the United Nations, uh, you know, a global body. You have in between the two, in between this global reconstruction and in between the national reconstruction, the beginning of an effort to do something else, to, to think of a, a rebuilding of the unity of Europe. And for the conservatives that I write about, you know, among them, for example, Winston Churchill, uh, who is in the opposition after the Second World War, after losing an election to the Labour Party, uh, quite stunningly in 1945, or figures like certain Christian Democrats uh, in France in particular, who are in the governing coalition, but find themselves in a minority in, in contrast to the power of the left. These conservatives are very concerned about the future of their countries and the future of Europe in the hands of left-wing parliamentary majorities. Even well-meaning socialists, they mm. feel, might lead their countries and might lead Europe down the path of totalitarianism. And so for this reason, they talk about human rights and protecting human rights at the international level as a way of protecting the individual and protecting civil society from these left-wing majority. And here, there is already an element of myth-busting, it seems to me, because in the mainstream discourse, human rights and the defense of human rights are primarily associated with progressive positions, starting with the great declarations of human rights at the time of the American and especially the French Revolution, and then the, the activists for democratization throughout the 19th century. So you, you seem to be telling a different story and to be reconstructing a different genealogy of human rights. Am I correct? Yeah. I think as historians, one of our typical refrains is it's much more complicated than you would think. That's how we annoy everybody else. And I think here that's, that's the case, that the story of human rights is not just a single trajectory. It doesn't just have one point of origin. And that point of origin is, is certainly not just to be found on the left, right? So it's true. The, the story we often tell about the birth of human rights, at least in the modern era, is a story that may begin in the Enlightenment. Uh, it may begin with the American and French revolutions of the late 18th century. It could begin in Britain. Uh, the British would trace it farther back to the Magna Carta or perhaps the 17th century British declarations of rights. But it is a story that 
is a story of revolutionary rights, a story that in the 19th century tends to focus on movements for social reform, progressive movements, and then ultimately the story has a, a moment of parenthesis in which you have the rise of nationalism and of course fascism, totalitarianism, the age of total war, and then after this from the ashes emerge human rights, but again as a fairly progressive project. If we think about the United Nations and the UN mm -hmm. Human Rights Commission, we think about the drafting of the 1948 Universal Declaration of right. Human Rights, two years before the adoption of the European Convention. Uh, the figures we associate are Eleanor Roosevelt, mm. the widow of the Democratic President Franklin Roosevelt. We think of uh, the head of the UN Human Rights Division, the Secretariat, was a Canadian socialist, John Humphrey played a very important role. We think of René Cassin. Maybe people might not associate him necessarily with the left, but the, this was the French delegate who, has, who had fought or had been in the Free French with Charles de Gaulle during the war, a kind of stalwart Republican jurist, you know, from that, from that old tradition. So yeah, if we think about the United Nations and we think about that larger story, we, said, we associate it with some kind of progressive or center-left moment and what it, conservatives for the most part in the history of human rights are considered either to be obstructionists, enemies of human rights, or if they did play a role, so if we do find a conservative that played a role in this story, well, it wasn't because they were conservative. Their conservatism was incidental, right? And so I've tried in a way to tell a different story that says, well, there are different points of origin. Some of them are on the left and some of them are on the right. Maybe if I can briefly summarize the distinction, as I understand it in your work, between conservative defenses of human rights and progressive defenses of human rights, I see three main differences. First of all, the definition the conservative give of human rights. They define human rights so as to exclude social rights, for example, which instead for progressive are for progressives are very important. Second point, the, who is part of the system? For conservatives, for example, the colonies uh, were not meant to enjoy human rights and the system was framed also to exclude communist countries from human rights as regimes, of course, that violated human rights. And uh, third point, the grounding of human rights. For progressive, it was some form of abstract notion of human dignity. For conservatives, it was these were the rights of an historical community of peoples uh, rooted in medieval Christendom and the Christian view of men. So um, uh, do I read you correctly? And maybe could you elaborate a little bit on this, particularly the last point? What is the memory, the component of memory that is fueling conservative defenses of human rights? Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. And there are a lot of components here. We can think about the rights that are protected under the European Convention on Human Rights, uh, and not just the European Convention, which you know, we should say it was adopted in November 1950 by an organization, yeah. the Council of Europe, which m most of us are familiar with today. The Council of Europe was a predecessor to the European communities of the 1950s. And this convention was adopted in 1950, and then you had a series of other kinds of protocols adopted later. And yes, the categories of rights safeguarded in the European Convention and these protocols were not, for the most part, the economic and social rights found in the Universal Declaration adopted by the UN two years earlier. So the rights to social security, the rights to health care, the rights to employment are not found in the convention. And in fact, when you look at the rights that might appear to be more progressive in the convention and the first protocol, so for example, trade union rights uh, in the 
first protocol adopted in 1952, you have education rights. Mm -hmm. But these rights are framed, and I, this is the importance really of understanding the context and reading um, these documents in the historical context, that they're framed in a way that was favorable to conservative viewpoints and not to the left. So though that's an, that's an interesting puzzle. Why is that? And if you talk to jurists, you talk to the Council of Europe, they'll, they'll give you a kind of technical explanation. They'll say, well, you know, these were rights that were best adjudicated on by a kind of European court, or they reflected some kind of consensus at the time and so forth. And what I try to do is step back and say, well, if you actually go into the archives, you actually look at the private correspondence, you look at the government memos, you look at the newspapers, you look at the domestic political context, you realize the story is not that simple. You look at another part of the convention, the most radical part of it, the creation of this European Court of Human Rights. Uh, and we can talk more about that, but that was unprecedented for the time, quite radical, and I argue also a conservative innovation. And then the last part that you touched on is um, something a little bit deeper. It's not just about the rights, which ones are protected or not, or this court. It's about the kind of cultural and ethical basis of it. And I would say if you, you know, read the preamble of the European Convention on Human Rights, on the one hand, it talks about the Universal Declaration. They, they did gesture to the UN. But on the other hand, it talks very explicitly in the preamble about a common heritage that the signatories of the convention shared, these mostly Western European non-communist governments. They shared a common heritage of the rule of law, of political democracy. They say political, not social democracy. So there is this two-sided part that human rights are universal, but they're also something very European, and in particular, something very Western European. So the convention is really about European human rights and not universal human rights. And there, I think, is where the connection between culture and politics becomes evident. This wasn't just a legal project. There wasn't just a political project. It was a cultural project. And the roots of that are deeply embedded in a kind of Christian vision of European values that is something much older, something that predates human rights law altogether. Could you clarify in what sense, when you say that, for example, the, the European Court of Human Rights, the idea of a court with supranational jurisdiction that could therefore adjudicate cases brought before it by citizens. In, in what sense is this conservatism? I mean, a liberal yeah. could say this is also a liberal internationalist idea. Yeah. What, what, on what ground do you make the claim? So again, we, we have to be very attentive to the, the particular context of the time, both the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, but also the broader history of how conservatives and how people on the left uh, viewed courts and viewed judiciaries. Now, if you think about the traditions of sovereignty we have in Britain or we have on the continent. These are constitutional traditions in which courts do not have the kind of radical powers of judicial review. They don't have the ability to overrule acts of parliament in the way, say, you would see in the U.S. Supreme Court in the U.S. system. So in Britain, you have the principle of parliamentary sovereignty. The parliament is supreme. Uh, and this is particularly true of the views on the left, because the left in Britain they saw obstacles to the will of the majority as getting in the way of their program of social reform uh, or even social revolution. Courts were considered to be conservative. The judiciaries were considered to be a conservative elite. The left associated them with rulings against trade unions, against left-wing organizations for property rights. On the continent, uh, the same thing. In France, uh, and you know, the French are a big part of this story, 
Uh, France, it, the guiding principle is that of, par, of popular sovereignty, the will of the people expressed through the National Assembly, not judges. In fact, in France, there was an expression, and you still have it to this day, uh, a fear of a gouvernement de juges, mm -hmm. a government of judges, a, a sense among French Republicans that to give too much power to courts was in effect to restore kind of the aristocrats of the Ancien Regime, right. the people who had power over the people. So we just have to understand that courts were considered to give that kind of judicial power to any court was considered conservative. And on top of that, at the United Nations and among international legal circles in the 1940s, it was considered absolutely preposterous, fantastical, utopian that any European countries would ever agree to give an international court that kind of power over their domestic affairs. And so that's one of the real mysteries. How did it happen then that you had the Council of Europe, these member states, agree to at least have optional provisions in the European Convention to create this unprecedented court. And that's why the book is a revolution. It's a conservative human rights revolution, because there was this incredible revolution in the kind of institutional and constitutional structures of Europe that had not been foreseen at all, even in the aftermath of the Second World War. Okay, thanks. I have one question on sort of current developments before we move to discussing some issues related with Christian democracy, which is particularly interesting, I think, in the context of the European People's Party. And the question has to do with the way these competing narratives on European integration that partly come out of your book at a point seem to disappear. And today, uh, the European project is largely identified with liberal progressive, let's say, cosmopolitan ideas to the point that the campaign next year, for example, is often framed as a fight between Macron on the one end and Salvini, if you want. So sort of liberal cosmopolitanism and national populism. When at a point in this history, the conservative Europeanism that supported the European Convention on Human Rights sort of disappeared or fades away or is not influential anymore. How did that happen? And how do you see that as a historian? Well, look, I would partly disagree with your premise. I think there are a lot of people now on the left, especially farther on the left, or you might call them the populist left, the more kind of old Radical. left yeah. that, has, that has the old, the new old left. Um, they would see the European project very much like socialists saw it um, in the middle of the 20th century, which they, as a capitalist project, meant to advance a kind of free market philosophy that they find to be reactionary. So I do think there is a persistence or maybe a revival of this left-wing criticism of the European project. So I, I do think that, that Europe today and the European Union is being criticized on both fronts. You have people on the right and on the left. Now, it is true, though, that there, there was a moment in which Europe became increasingly seen as a kind of progressive project. Uh, and I think in every country, there are different turning points. Uh, you can think about Britain, for example, and you think about the 1980s. You think about mm -hmm. a moment in which the British left is divided among itself about how to approach Britain's participation in the European project, but ultimately increasingly tending towards a more pro-Europe position. And you see Margaret Thatcher, who struggles a lot about with the question of how much to support this ever greater union. And Margaret Thatcher ultimately does a volte face. She ultimately moves from 
viewing the European project much like Friedrich Hayek had seen it as a kind of liberalizing project, a free market project aligned with her own vision to seeing it as a kind of super state and a progressive technocratic project that was a, that was in opposition. And so in a way, Margaret Thatcher was right and wrong. I think these two aspects have always existed, and that's that's what she identified. There's still obviously conflict within the conservative party. Uh, you know, in other countries, there are other movements. I, I would I think there are a lot of uh, developments within the left that, that make a difference here. The move away from a very statist socialism, the move away from the old left that was highly technocratic, looked to the state to implement its policies towards a newer left that was more anti-statist, anti-technocratic, more about devolving power away from the state and critiquing the state. And ultimately, in that move away from that old school socialism, the left needed something else. It needed something to fill the void. And Europe, I think, in a way, filled that void. And with the end of the Cold War, the collapse of the, of communism and kind of the old Marxist ideas, that that's what was there for the left. That they had Europe. And so uh, you did see those the, the, the positions switch. I'd like to move to um, Christian democracy and some related topics. As you know, Christian democracy is the original nucleus of the European People's Party, although starting in the 1990s, the party has branched out to other political traditions, including parties that would be considered liberal or conservatives. But Christian democracy still today, I would say, remains essential. And it plays a certain role and even an important role, I think, in the story you are telling about human rights and the European Convention. I would start maybe, the first step is to discuss one of the major philosophical influences upon Christian democracy in these uh, decades and afterwards, and that is the personalist movement, particularly in France. Uh, what role did personalism play in, in your story? Yeah, so, uh, you know, the starting... So maybe what it is yeah. for, for the listeners. The starting point is uh, challenging because personalism was many things to many people, just like Christian democracy mm. was many things to many Christian Democrats. In a way, that is, I think, the power behind the Christian democracy, the political language of Christian democracy is in effect, it has a certain eclecticism, a certain ability to appeal to different shades of opinion. And personalism in a way was the same. But one could broadly say that personalism was a philosophy that valued the human Person, the development of the human personality, what was once called the soul, uh, within a communal framework. Mm -hmm. So within the context of how we as people develop certain rights and obligations within the family, within our local community, within the church, within the different kinds of organizations in which we work every day. And so personalism was, was an idea originally more about duties probably than rights, but about building yourself as a person within these different kinds of ethical communities. And the important element here, I think, is that personalism distingu distinguished itself both from liberal individualism, with its emphasis on the individual and the rights and duties of the individual, and it also distinguished itself from a kind of socialist collectivism. So it said we're going to value the human person who's not just an abstract individual, you know, completely uprooted from the communal context, the family and so forth in which the individual lives, but we're also not 
socialist collectivists kind of along that the Soviet lines, we don't believe the individual is wholly absorbed into some kind of collective like social class. And so it was an attempt like Christian democracy more generally to navigate a kind of middle way between that kind of individualism and that kind of collectivism and forge something that ultimately in practice and you know the policy implications are always important in practice was going to be defending catholic civil society and the catholic family and and catholic interests from a secular state and particularly the autonomy of catholic schools this was yes. the major issue. and so and the, the question about catholic schools and whether parents could send their children to private schools, whether the state would right. subsidize that was a very important part of the story of why Catholics came to see education as a fundamental human right and the, the rights of parents to choose the religious orientation of their children's education to be a fundamental human right codified in European human rights law when they did not succeed in doing so in, mm. in national constitutions in places like France. Marco, I mean, if there is any issue that you would like to address, that you would like to raise at this stage, and that you think is maybe relevant for contemporary European discussions, since you are American, uh, living in Australia, uh, feel free to do it now. I think what I would like to add for our listeners who believe that history should illuminate the present uh, and commit the sin uh, we historians call presentism, of which I'm a sinner, I would simply suggest that in the moment we find ourselves now with the rise of populism on both the left and the right, that the original conservative function of the European Convention on Human Rights and European courts might once again become highly relevant. So let's take Britain, for example, where you've had for some years now a lot of controversy over the rulings of the European court in Strasbourg with regards to Britain, right? It could be the rights of suspected terrorists or the voting rights of prisoners. Now, there has been a move within the Conservative Party to oppose and criticize the court, especially before Brexit, when it was easy to criticize the Strasbourg court mm -hmm. with, while still defending Britain's position in the European Union. Now, imagine if Jeremy Corbyn's Labour Party comes right. into power, which is not any more a fantastical mm -hmm. proposition. Imagine if there is a resurgence of an old left, more statist agenda of renationalizing, much more direct intervention in the economy. Uh, imagine if in a future financial crisis or other crises caused by global warming uh, and other changes, the, the, there is an opportunity for the left to once again uh, really empower the state to intervene decisively in economic and social affairs. The European courts, both of them, but the European Court of Human Rights is there as a backstop uh, against that. Under the logic, the original conservative logic, that however well-meaning uh, uh, you know, social democrats and socialists and you know, civil servants may be, uh, that ultimately there's a slow erosion of the state uh, that uh, you've seen time and again. And for conservatives, the court is there. And I think you may very well see a shift in the, the views of conservatives on those issues. And we could extrapolate that more generally to the continent in which both left-wing and right-wing populists have been quite statist and quite happy to empower the state. And in many ways, um, their views are completely antithetical to the Christian democratic views of the middle of the 20th century. They believe in a much less pluralistic vision, a kind of unitary nation state. Uh, you look at France, look at the Front National, the Rassemblement National. Their, their vision is in, in a way that what was once the nightmare of the right, right, a kind of Jacobin vision of a exactly. secular 
unitary republic that is anti-communitarian, anti-pluralistic. In you know that that would have been anathema to a lot of these Christian Democrats, and and I think you see that around Europe. So that's why I think in a way that the conservative anti-status function. But one more thing, which is I think the European project is is in a crisis now, both because of the economics uh, and the material factors. It no longer seems to benefit people's pocketbooks. And that was the source of a lot of the legitimacy before. But also because there is no real compelling kind of historical memory that is anchoring the project anymore. Once you expanded mm. the European project to the East and the North and the South and with the changing demographics of Europe, there isn't really another compelling project that emerged. I would argue you cannot go back to the old vision. You cannot go back to just resurrecting the, the 20th century, or the 19th century, or the Middle Ages version of Europe. But there isn't really anything compelling in its place. There's not what Churchill called a sense of the spiritual values mm. of Europe anymore. And I think that is at the heart of the lack of a emotive appeal of the project to ordinary Europeans. Okay, thank you very much. I normally would summarize, but I think this is a very fitting conclusion for, for our exchange. So thank you very much to uh, Marco Duranti. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you very much to our listeners. And I, I would really like to repeat, if you're interested in this topic, read the book because it is wonderful, The Conservative Human Rights Revolution by Marco Duranti, published by Oxford University Press. Thank you very much. That was today's episode of Europe Out Loud. Subscribe to our podcasts for more.